Good morning, everyone. Do I look calm on the outside? (laughs) It's mainly thanks to a coffee that Debbie made before. Um, Our printer packed up at home, so I was reliant on technology, knowing that we had the systems here that could cope and that I was, you know, technologically advanced uh, human and could sort it all out. But um, I should have just stopped and prayed, I think. would have been a safer bet, much safer. So... Uh, apologies for a slight delay. Um, standing room only at the back, which is nice. Um, we, um, I've left a thought up on the screen there, um, which really you need to hold on to for a bit later on. Um, because uh, that's a bit Zephaniary, and we're going to have a little gentle contemplative time thinking about relationship between David and Saul in the Old Testament and how that relates to us. Um, But first of all, we've got something really nice to do together, which is to welcome Jess, who was baptised here yesterday, into our church. And we're going to do that after we sing a a song in a moment. So for for those of you who are then going into crash or anywhere else, you know. Last night, Neil talked about the fact that, um, and I'm paraphrasing, that we're we're not magically transformed when baptised. It's not like suddenly God can see us and we're there. And now he can love us in some way. But actually, he has loved us from the start. He did that. He saw us and chose us. And he chose Jess from inside the womb and decided that he was going to love you to life, which is what he's now done. Baptism is about us being transformed, isn't it? About us thinking differently. About us being committed um, in that pledge that Neil also talked about yesterday. It doesn't change God. It changes us because God wants us changed. He adores us already, and now he's waiting for our adoration. So if you stand up, we're going to sing brightest and best, the sons of the morning. Um, And in the third verse, you'll hopefully see why. Father God, we know that we come from a a messed up place, even if our lives are normal, they're chaotic. And anyway, what is normal? We just pray that at this time, you give us your peace to share together and to bask in the love that you have for us and that your lovely son Jesus has too. To celebrate Jess's baptism, to celebrate through the meal that we share together a perfect life lived perfectly, a sacrifice that has so much pain wrapped up in it, but an unbelievable hope that Jesus held before him all the time and that we forget so often to hold before us. Help us to quietly reflect on that and to come closer to you. Amen. So we have um, a tradition. And uh, normally I don't like those (laughs) if they're just traditions. Um, And it's a tradition of offering a hand of fellowship to newly baptised people. Actually, this tradition is a lovely symbol. It's a symbol that's meant to remind you, Jess, that you're joining a much wider family 
than just those that you're able to hug today. Um, And it's an important thing, I think, for us to just recognize you and to welcome you here today, even if you already feel very welcome. I'm going to ask you and the rest of the church to make a commitment to each other, not like the one that you made yesterday in terms of its significance, but it is in terms of its symbolism. Neil called you to a baptism, called your baptism a pledge with God, a commitment, a witnessing of your ongoing journey. And you know this already, but there are lots of other people here who are already on that journey um, who want to share that pledge with you too. So if you're happy to come up here, um, I'll get my notes up into a place where I can actually read them. And I'd ask the church to stand as well, please. You can bring a if you want. Is there, are there any members of the managing committee who are going to join us for the prayer at the end as well? You might as well come up now. Jeff. Yeah, come up. Can't be, you're too strong. When I imagined this in my head, I thought this would be quite scary and intimidating. I thought that would be for Jess, but it's for me. (laughs) Can I have your hand? Jess, this is for you to respond. Do you commit yourself to loving and serving the Lord within this church family and in the world? And as part of the family here, do you promise to love and encourage, strengthen, guide, pray and care for all the family here at the Bethel to the best of your ability and in God's strength? I do, yes. Okay, it's over to you guys. Do you welcome Jess into the family of Christ here at the Bethel? Yes. Do you promise to love, encourage, strengthen, guide, pray for and care for Jess as your sister in the family of Christ at the Bethel and to serve the Lord together with her to the best of your ability and in God's strength. Yes. Excellent. Well done. You can sit down. (laughs) We're going to say a little prayer together just to acknowledge uh, that this this is God's family here at the Bethel. Father, we're just here to offer up our lives to you And to ask you to reach out your arms and grasp us. Sometimes our hand towards you and our look towards you is a bit feeble, but we know you have strong arms and that you will hold on tight to all of us. And particularly at this time, we ask for a blessing on Jess, that you will bring her into this family and make her feel like she is surrounded by lovely brothers and sisters but also that you will give her strength to be that brother, that sister to those around her. Lord, help us all to be encouraged, to be uplifted and to do something with that feeling, to strengthen our commitment to you, but most of all to come closer to you and your lovely son, Jesus. Amen. words ringing in our ears. Will you come and give us uh, our announcements, please? And can you tell me what the second collection is? Morning. It is good to welcome Jess. It's also really good to welcome Eve with us this morning, and also Morris, and everybody else. It's great for you to be here. Father, please bless our day, and bless all these plans that we have made this coming week. Thank you, Jesus, for being by our side.
We continue to pray for all of our family who struggle for whatever reason. In particular, we have news of Rob, who has been in contact this week. Unfortunately, he was taken into hospital at the beginning of the week for an operation. He is home again now and sends his love to all. Please remember Rob in your prayers. He's still going through some difficult times. I'm sure a letter or a card would be much appreciated by him. One of Anne's colleagues at the place where she does some voluntary work died suddenly, quite recently, and his name was Dave. Please can we include his family in our prayers. Heather's mum had an operation this week. She's home again now after some initial difficulties. Please can we remember all of Heather's family in our prayers. We think of all the difficulties around the world, especially today those in Nepal still struggling with the aftermath of the earthquakes which have hit the region. And also those migrants who are being treated so appallingly as those who profit by trafficking them across the Mediterranean and across the South Asia Sea. Finally, Simon has provided us with a message from John Bonani, our brother in the Congo. Just in case you've forgotten, or those who don't know John, John has been in prison for nearly a year now, um, wrongfully put into prison. And uh, he's faced all sorts of stuff while he's in there, and he just wants to share some of what's going on with us now. Tell my brothers and sisters at the Bethel, them, I real love them and appreciate that we've been all together in prayers. And we have won the case, despite me being in here still. God is master of all circumstances and never failed. The Bible passages you're all sending me here are really helpful. Without you, I wouldn't probably be alive today. Hunger in here, disease, stress, solitude, etc. But for me, it's a new experience. The first time in my life to focus on the Bible on a daily basis. The time I'm too close to our Lord in meditation. The first time I've attracted a huge number of people to God. The first time a huge number of people have associated me to help them and guide them to confess and repent their sins, sins you may not want to hear. The first time I've met a huge number of famous people who consider and respect me because of God's gospel. The first time I have managed to understand my real friends and family. The time I experienced the betrayal of your own brothers and forgive despite the deepness of the wound. Jesus was more than a man, etc. So for me, it's not just a negative, also a number of positive things. Our Lord is amazing. We should just be a bit patient. We are going to get there. We're not of this world. Passengers we are, and soon we will rejoice in praises and worshipping. Fear not man who can destroy only the body, but fear God who can destroy both body and soul. Much love. God bless. John. And finally, a message from the Tasker family, who just want to say thank you to all our lovely family at Old Trafford. You are amazing for embracing us all in celebration and love of Jesse's baptism. Always wonderful to see all the parts of the body doing their thing with Christ as our head and our heartbeat, the taskers. Thank you. I'd just like us to spend the time reflecting on what we've just heard, rather than me talking. So those who 
have just come out of hospital, those who've had to go back in this week, the family that Anne knows that are suffering bereavement. The discussion we just had about, or that we heard about John Banani's life and any other issues that anybody else wants us to reflect on. So is there anything you want us to think about now? Just stay seated and we'll round our prayer off with the words of this hymn that we sing together. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Your peace will lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Thank you. We're going to have a reading in the moment. Um, Just before we do that, um, I've got a couple of images that I want you to hold while you're doing it. And um, it struck me as we were listening to John Bonani's note that actually everybody faces their own Goliath. And I know, Pete, what you want to talk about is more about David and Saul, but you asked us to read from the passage about Goliath. And everybody faces their own Goliath, don't they? I saw one or two people here who were struggling to sing that song because it's difficult when you remember the times that God has reached into your life and carried you over to, you know, to just carry on singing about it. Um, David's Goliath was enormous. And, uh, and I wonder whether we realize how big his Goliath really was. And, and so there's, there's, there's a bit of humor in this, but it's only really to give you a picture. So I, I went to an awards dinner on um, Thursday evening, and this gentleman, who happens to be called David uh, Partridge, um, who's about five foot nine, five foot ten, receives an award, Property Personality of the Year. You know, we won't give him a round of applause. But anyway, that's him receiving his award. And then he was allowed to do a speech, and he was handed the microphone by the guy who was doing the award ceremony. That was Martin Bayfield, um, an ex-second row, I think, for, for England. <laughs> <clears throat> so that's actual scale. There's no, nothing hidden in there. And it got, it got me to thinking, what was David's Goliath like? In terms of a physical presence in front of him, I know our Goliaths might be less than physical presences, but, but if you scale it up, the six and a half cubits um, that, that it talks about in the Bible, then if that's David standing there at five foot nine, five foot ten, that's Goliath, who was a giant. <laughs> and yet David, as a young man, may not have been anything like as big as our David, uh, decided to take him on in the power of his God and went against the, the direction of his king in order to do it. So we're going to read now from Exodus 20, and I think Steve's agreed to do that. Thank you very much. Um, Exodus 20. It might be a different verses to the ones that I get. It's not Exodus 20 at all, is it? It's 1 Samuel 17. I should have changed that on here. Yeah. Can you just double check that I've got the right passage then? And I think it was from about verse 8 where the story breaks in. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so we're in 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'm going to go from verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and servers. 
Then the Philistines said, This day, so then the Philistines said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The first was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurances from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning David left the flock with the shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached a camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies and ran to the battle lines and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath the Philistine, champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And they repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul. And Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go out and fight him. And Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he has been fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, 
and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armour on him and a bronze helmet on his head. And David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached a Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, "'Am I dog that you come at me with sticks?' And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give it all into our hands." As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine. With a sling and a stone, without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took over the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sharim road of Gath and Ekron. And when the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistine's head and brought it into Jerusalem, and he put the Philistine's weapons in his own tent. And as Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? And Abner replied, as surely as you live, O king, I don't know. Find out whose son this young man is. And as soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding a Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked. And David said, I'm the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. Pete, will you come and give us your words, please? Morning. I'm going to try and keep a really close time watch on the time, which I'm not very good at, as you know. So, yeah, thanks, Tony. I appreciate, appreciate that. I was brought up uh, with the, the whole idea of types. That, you know, 
So much so, in fact, I think, that actually half the time you, you forgot what the message at the centre of the, of the gospel really was because, you know, everything in the Old Testament was a, was a, was a type. The sacrifices were a type that looked forward to Christ. The layer, the tabernacle was a type that looked forward, that told you all these, these things. And, you know, every single thing you came to was, was looking forward to something else. Um, uh, and we seem to concentrate on that, really, rather, rather than the stories. I don't think we do that so much with our um, children in, in Sunday school. But but there's an essence in which um, God is able to both tell a story and have it signify something else and have layer upon layer that we couldn't construct if we were trying to do that. So there's always something else in there as as well as what there is on the surface. And um, the story, I think, of David and Saul, and David and Goliath, and David and Jonathan, and David and Mephibosheth, uh, are all like that. Through the life of someone who really existed, God is trying to tell us something that is important for us to recognise and to learn those lessons and to not repeat the same mistakes. And I think maybe, seeing as we've had the reading of Goliath, I'm going to, I'm going to start, it's, it's almost dangerous, isn't it? I have these notes and then I go, nah, I'm not going to do that. Um, let's start in looking at, at David and Goliath. Because we're all familiar with the story. We don't, we don't need, you know, to, to go through all that. Although I suspect that most of us tend to think that, you know, um, David was playing with a, with a, with a kind of stone like this. And I, I'm pretty sure that what he hurled at Goliath was probably about the size of a cricket ball. Um, there's ample archaeological evidence of slingers, uh, in arm using Stones of about that size. They're littered all over the place. And um, with a decent um, slingshot, that's going to be leaving the the sling at 150 to 200 miles an hour. About twice the speed of a fast bowler uh, on a cricket pitch. It weighs about two to three times the weight of a cricket ball. And who here has ever been hit by a cricket ball? Yeah? Does it hurt? It, normally it does, doesn't it? And probably in the games that we're playing, it's only doing 40 or 50 miles an hour when it hits you. Yeah. So imagine something three times out, you know, no wonder it's sunk into his forehead. Anyway, that's, that's the kind of technical bit, you know. Um, but I, yeah. David, David was playing for keeps. But let's, let me just pull some things out of that, that story. The, the taunt that Goliath started off with, it was, Beat me or become slaves. That was, that was the alternative. Either you, you destroy me or you all become my servants. That, that, that was the deal. And that's the way sin works. Either sin is destroyed or we become its slaves. Saul. Uh, and we'll see a bit about why Saul couldn't do it. Saul was the was the essential guy. If 
Um, he maybe wasn't quite as tall as the picture that uh, that Steve put up, but he was head and shoulders above the, above everybody else. You know, he he was. Tony stood next to Becky Brickhouse. He was, you know, he was a big guy. Do I always pick on you, Becky? I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Um, but he couldn't. He couldn't. He couldn't tackle him. David went and tackled him in apparent weakness. And that's, and that's how we would see Jesus, I think, in apparent weakness. How do you defeat an enemy by going and being killed, which is what Jesus did? That, it doesn't make sense, does it? Um, and yet, too, we see that David went in confidence. He knew that he could do the task. He trusted God that he would uh, that he would do that. And in the end, uh, though, he cuts off Goliath's head. In the same way that if we thought back to Genesis three, that's the the serpent was going to be just, uh, hit in the head. And he then took Goliath's armour and hung it in his tent. We didn't read that bit. Um, Which is quite reminiscent of Colossians 2, where it talks about Jesus having spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them uh, in it. So, there are some very strong parallels, I, I think, between David destroying Goliath and Jesus uh, destroying um, him that hath the power of death and sin. Uh, and that produced freedom for all of those who were associated with it. But let's go back and look at Saul and why Saul didn't do the job that he should have done. Um, we're going to start in First Samuel 8 and we're going to have a look at. Now, you know, Israel was fresh into the land. Um, they'd gradually been carrying out the conquest that they should have done a good deal quicker. But of late, they'd had a number. They'd had a number of setbacks. Uh, you, you have to think back to Samuel's uh, origins. Uh, Eli, uh, his two sons were corrupt. They couldn't um, look after Israel. Samuel came. His sons didn't do what should have been done. And Israel, Israel said, what we need is a king. Everybody else has got a king. We need a king. Why can't we have a king? We want to be like everybody else. Big mistake. So, yeah, that, that was the first. We want to be like everybody else. And so, um, God says, that's fine. Um, and Samuel, don't think this is a reflection on you. It's me that they're rejecting. Um, and you can go and make a king for them, but warn them that it isn't going to go how they think. So, you know, God was upfront about how the whole thing was going to fail. Um, 
And what in First uh, Samuel 9, uh, Samuel goes and finds, guided by God, is somebody who's exactly what the people would think that they wanted. He was, he was a big man, he was, uh, he was strong. But he wasn't, it seems, very spiritual. Um, and as we, we, go, we go through um, 1 Samuel 9, 1 Samuel 10, when Samuel anoints Saul, um, he tells him about several things that are going to happen to him um, after his anointing as he goes on, including the fact that um, the spirit would fall upon him and he would join the band of prophets and prophesy with them. And uh, I think that the, the few little words about um, that are said about that, where people say, is Saul among the prophets? Tells us a lot about what sort of person he was. Because Nobody seems to be amazed. Oh, Saul, Saul as king? No, 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 that seemed okay. But Saul among the prophets, that took some believing. Yeah? Because that wasn't naturally what he was like. But here he is, Israel's big hope. Israel's big disappointment. Or certainly God's and Samuel's big disappointment. It's always difficult when you, when you say these things because, of course, God knew right from the beginning what was going to happen, and yet you sense that, you know, even when it happens, uh, that God feels it at the time, I think. So what happens? First of all, Samuel says to him, right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to uh, uh, offer a sac- gather the people together and we're going to offer a sacrifice. And he tells him, you know, um, we're going to do it in, in a week's time. So Saul gathers all the people together and people start saying, well, I'm not hanging around here for a week. What am I, you know, it's worse than one of Pete's exhortations. I'm, I'm not hanging around here for a week. What am I going to do? And people start to wander off and it, eventually Saul goes, oh, well, I can't wait. For, I can't wait for Samuel. I, I'll, I'll offer the sacrifice. Um, and Samuel... Um, gives him a sound telling off uh, because of that. You acted foolishly, Samuel tells him. Well, that may not in itself seem much. But the point is that Samuel underlines it. You've not kept the command your Lord, the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. Actually, it's a very similar message to that that God gave to Adam. Adam was given... Um, jurisdiction and rulership over the world to to look after it to uh, and tend it but he didn't keep the command that God had given him and so his kingdom didn't endure the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart 
and appointed him leader of the people because you've not kept his command. Adam and Jesus. Saul and Anybody? David! Oh, right, yes. Good. Thank you. Somebody was paying attention. Right. And Saul compounds his his, uh, error later by being told to destroy all the Amalekites. And, you know, they kept all the best stuff for themselves. uh, And then he tries to explain it. Well, we we kept it because we were going to sacrifice it. And, you know, and uh, we get this, this whole thing. What is better? To, to gather stuff together and, and give it to God, or to do what God tells you to do in the first place. What does God want? God wants us to do what he wants us to do. He doesn't want us to think around that and try and find something that we think is better to do than what God tells us to do. He wants us to do what he wants us to do. And do you know, then... Saul is rejected. How long was Saul king of Israel? Well, this is a, this is, you know, this is a, a, a hard one. 42 years. Yeah, I think. I think 42. Right. How much of that time should he have been king? We, I'm, I don't, that's a rhetorical question because actually we don't know. But it seems as though these incidents actually were fairly early on in Saul's reign. And all the rest of the time he is, um, I wrote down here, clinging to power like an unwanted politician. But he's clinging, he's clinging on to power when God has rejected him. Now, I think that the lesson for us there is what we do in our lives. Because we are set up where we are kind of kings in our own kingdom. God has given us control. We make the choices. And God has said to us, actually, you're not good enough at that. There is another king to whom you should give your allegiance. He should be king in your life. I found myself um, a better man. um, When he talks about finding the new king, he he talks about, I have chosen for myself, says God to Samuel. Uh, 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 Literally what the words. Saul was effectively the people's choice. But David was God's choice to show us how the king should be. And for we don't know how many years, 20 years, there were two kings in Israel. There was Saul, who had been rejected by God, who was in control. And there was David, who had been anointed by Samuel. Samuel had now died. The real king was effectively in hiding. And why was he in hiding? He was in hiding because he did not force himself 
on the rejected king. He could have, he could have said, God has chosen me. You have been rejected. I am going to come in and sweep through. I will, it is clear that David had several opportunities where he could have killed Saul and moved in. But you know, that isn't the way that Jesus works. Jesus doesn't force himself into our lives. Jesus, even though we've shown that we are not capable of being the people that we should be, he is patient and waits. And of course, what Saul should have done was recognised that David was the better man, recognised that he had been rejected by God and stepped down. And that is what God asks all of us to do in our lives, to recognise that the only way that we will please God is to let Jesus reign in our lives. And we see Saul refusing to do that, becoming more jealous, trying to act in his own strength. There are lots of parallels that I could find that reinforce these types. We could uh, could look at the description of David in 1 Samuel 16, compare that with uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 5, to see the... The, the similarity of the description of this ruddy and altogether beautiful person. We could look at uh, Psalm 45, where um, God talks about grace being poured into your lips, and compare that with Luke 4, where it talks about they wondered at the words of grace that Jesus spoke. There are lots and lots of parallels all down in, in the detail. But it's this contrast between jealous, petulant, angry, um, whatever the opposite of, I, I've put here no humility, and I was trying to say unhumble, or there isn't an unhumble word, is there? Um, anyway, uh, unrepentant and um, continuing the hostility from Saul's side. And in contrast, no force, no insistence on rights, and unbelievable patience from David to wait to get what was his. It seems in some ways almost a hopeless message, uh, but I think there are a couple of rays of light in this. Liz said to me, I hope this isn't going to be too dark. Jonathan. See, Jonathan belonged to the family of Saul. He was Saul's son. He inherited all of those in the same way that we are sons of Adam. And his love for David was so great that he didn't care about any of the things that were his by virtue of his inheritance. All he wanted to do was for David to take over and him to serve David. That was their relationship. And he never got to do it in his case. But he's there, I think, to show us uh, 
the transforming power of loving the real king instead of the the deposed king. And David showed that always he had care and love for that family of the deposed king. Because when he was, when he came to the throne, most of Saul's family had been killed. And he sets out on a search to find if there's anybody left of Saul's family that he can show love and care to. And what do they find? They find Mephibosheth, both, I'm not going to be able to say it, Mephibosheth, he's crippled in both feet because when they ran to save him, he was dropped. There's nothing that he can do for himself. He's not capable of working. And David gives him a place at his table and feeds him and lavishes upon him all of the love that David had for Jonathan. All of the care and concern that he would have shown to Saul if Saul had only not been so arrogant and stubborn and given in to the rulership of the true king. And that is the love, the invitation for us cripples to come to the table of our king and share with him forever. For now, we share a meal that reminds us of Jesus. Is a picture of Jesus, just like David is a picture of Jesus. A meal that reminds us of his body that hung on a cross and of his blood that was poured out for us. But importantly, reminds us that we are saved through his death and resurrection. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said... Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. Father, it's good to be here today. It's great to share this meal with Jess this morning. It's great to share this meal with you again, Lord. And we pray that whatever faces us this week, whether it's the mundane, whether it's the happy, whether it's the giants, that we can continue to take Jesus and your principles father your love into our hearts into our minds that you can continue to shape and change us that that more people can see you in us and that we can reflect on ourselves now and think about the example that was there before us in the old testament we think about david and the good that he did and sometimes the bad things and we think about saul and sometimes the good things that he did and where he let you down and we look at ourselves help us not to get despondent father 
But remember that you look down deep into us and you treasure us. So help us to treasure those things of you that are in us. Uh, Father, we know we can only do these things in your strength. So we pray you'll go with us this week and now as we share this bread. And we thank you for this bread and the time we can share it now. Amen. John's going to lead us in prayer. Holy Father, Holy Father, we were reminded in a quote from Zephaniah this morning, Father, that you are the Saviour. You, Father, are our Saviour. We come to thank you for Jesus. We, We remember Jesus now, particularly in this bread and wine, Thank you that he came to show us you. He came to show us your salvation. Lord Jesus, we, we do this every week, break bread and drink wine, and sometimes we think that in this and in your cross, we are appealing to you, or if not us, then Jesus on our behalf is appealing to you to listen to us, as if you didn't listen. (laughs) What a crazy thought. I know, Father, that in the cross, in all the agony, in all the pain, in all the squalor, you were and are appealing to us. In that squalor and pain, we see you, Father, in your lovely Son, Jesus. We see you, Father, desperately, as it were, crying out to us, screaming out to us, I love you. And you desperately wanting us to come to you. You're always here. You always come to us. You always want to be with us. Thank you, Lord. But we don't always want to be with you. And you are desperately wanting us to come into your presence and see you face to face and see in your eyes your love for us. It's good today, Lord. We are together and we can do this together to recognise your love. It's good that we can welcome Jess amongst us and that she too can look into your eyes, Father, and your eyes, Lord Jesus, and see the great love that you have for us. Lord, please keep us close to you. Thank you. Amen. Pete, you said something that really struck a chord with me in the middle, talking about Saul, and you said uh, that God was looking at him and saying, you know, don't store up all the stuff, the good things that you're supposed to be doing, or you think you're supposed to be doing, just do what I told you in the first place. And it reminded me of something um, in the beginning of Isaiah, where 
God saying, I don't like what you're doing. You're doing all the things that you, that, you know, the, the sacrifices that you think you're supposed to be doing, but you haven't, you're just not doing what I told you in the first place. He says, um, your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I will hide my eyes from you, even when you offer many prayers. I will not listen when your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. And he goes on, it's quite a harsh words in Isaiah 1. And then what he says is, just stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. The writer of Isaiah just seems to be saying there is a, there's a simple message. We just have to do it. We have to look after those who have less than us and those that are oppressed. Plead the case of those that don't have someone to plead it for them. Learn to do right and seek justice before God. And I think that simple message is really important for us to hold on to. And if we're struggling to do that, if we're struggling to cope with just doing right in front of God, then we do have someone who can help us. Jesus is not only the way, but he's the way back as well when we're struggling. And we're going to sing for our closing hymn. We're going to jump across to the end one. Um, for the joys and for the sorrows. Because the sentiment that this has is that when we can't cope, when we don't have all the answers or we're not doing just doing what God plans for us, for this, we have Jesus. Let's pray. Father, there are days of celebration like we experienced yesterday. And we thank you for those. And there are days of difficulty when we should thank you for those. As John said in the letter that Steve wrote out, they may be the times when we come closest to you, when we have our greatest opportunity to be like your son Jesus. If there are times when we are needing reassurance, when we don't feel like we've got the endurance that we just sang about to cope with life, I pray that you will help us to seek out you in our brothers and sisters. To have the confidence to just ask, maybe confess what it is that's holding us back, but just ask for help. And for those of us who feel confident and strengthened by everything that we do and we hear and we read, for those who are filled with your spirit and feel like it, I pray that we will reach out and be the loving hand, the carer, the confider, not judging, but working out how we can build each other up to come closer to you. 
when we face our Goliaths, Lord, be with us. And send our Jonathans a ray of light that shows what your son Jesus had for us. And in that love, Lord, help us to go away from this place, not ignoring anybody, but behaving like brothers and sisters. Encourage us in everything that we do and keep us close to your son Jesus. Amen.